Um, before we get into the word, um, let's just pray together, okay? Father, we love you so much, and we just love this opportunity we have every week to come into your house and lift you up with our praises and sing about what you've done for us and just who you are. And we love this opportunity to just talk about what you did for us on that hill in Calvary. And Lord, we love this opportunity we have to hear from your word. So God, I just pray that you'll help me stay out of the way. And man, if we're thinking about other stuff, just help us to put all that stuff aside just for a second. Nobody wants to hear from me. We want to hear from you. So will you just please speak to us today as we look at your word. Show us something different. Show us a different perspective. Give us a different understanding. And more importantly, show us what you want us to know and what we should do so that we can be not only hearers of your word, but doers. Open up your word for us today in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, so if you're here for the first time in a while, um, you picked a perfect week to come because we're in week two of a study that we're calling The Kingdom. And I'll just give you a quick review. Um, Genesis 1 tells us that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And what we talked about last week was that, you know, we have a little bit different understanding now. The original biblical authors, the original biblical readers, the original hearers of this message that was passed down from generation to generation to generation, they had kind of a different perspective on the universe than we do. So when they heard the word heavens, we think, we hear the word heavens, and we start thinking about outer space and asteroids and planets and stars and solar systems and all that stuff. Or we hear the word heaven, and we start thinking about the clouds and the harps and the chubby angel baby right? That's, that's what comes to our mind. And then when we think of earth, obviously we think of the spinning blue ball that's flying through space and going around the sun and all that. That's what we think of with heavens and earth. But thousands of years ago when this was written, that's not at all how they perceived things. And their perspective on heaven and earth was different. And so when they thought of heaven, they mostly just thought of like, what's up there? When they thought of earth, they thought of what's down here? And they really saw it divided in a really simple division. And it was heaven and earth was God's space and man's space. So when they said in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, the way they really saw it was in the beginning God, in the beginning God created God's space and man's space. And there was a problem with man's space because it was chaotic and it was dark and it was covered with really scary, ominous, dark waters, and it was uninhabitable for God's favorite creation. And so God spent six days fixing that and bringing order to the chaos and bringing light to the darkness and making this place habitable for his favorite creation, right? The one creation that he said was made in his image, the one crea creation that he said he was willing to rule over heaven and earth with. Do you remember which creation that was? It's not a trick question. That's not the birds. Good try, though. It's humanity. It's humanity. It's mankind. That was his favorite creation. And do you remember what the Hebrew word is for mankind or humanity? Adam. Yeah, we say Adam. And so um, Genesis 2 is really kind of retelling that story from a little bit of a different perspective. And then it adds like a little wrinkle and it tells us that on earth there was a mountain. And on that mountain there was a place called Eden. And within Eden God planted a garden. And that's where he put 
man. And it was, Eden was awesome. It was amazing. It was perfect. It was perfect. Eden actually in Hebrew means um, paradise or it means delight. And so this was a perfect place. And God was there and man was there and God was providing everything that man needed, his protection, his provision, food, water, air, beauty, um, work. And also God provided his version of what was right and wrong. It was a perfect place. And what made it most perfect was not the fruit. What made it most perfect was not the beauty or the waterfalls or anything. What made it really perfect was this place in Eden. This garden was a place where God's space and man's space was the same space. So God and man were truly, really together. That was God's plan. For the whole, that was the plan from the beginning, was to create a place, a world, a kingdom, where God's space and man's space could be the same space. But God wanted more for man than just this great creation to enjoy. He wanted man to experience real love. Not to be programmed, not to just have instincts to do certain things. He wanted man to experience real love, and that meant man had to have a choice. Man had to have free will. And so God gave man free will, and he said, you can stay in this space, right, where God's space and man's space are the same space, and I'll provide everything that you need. I'll give you work, I'll give you beauty, I'll give you relationship, I'll give you food and water and everything that you need, and we'll use what I call good and evil. You can stay, or you can separate. And if you separate, that's gonna mean that you're trying to decide what's good and what's evil, and that's gonna mean that you're trying to create your own world, and your own purpose, and your own beauty, and your own love, and your own purpose in life. And a snake comes on the scene, and he tempts man, and man is not strong enough to stand up to that temptation, so he sins. And he chooses to separate from God, and so now we've gone from this amazing thing of God's space, and man's space being the same space, and now God is gonna give man what he asked for. He's gonna let him separate. And so he kicks man out of the garden and the most horrible thing that ever happened, God's space and man's space were separated. And pretty much the rest of the Bible is the story of God figuring out a way to bring them back together so that man's space and God's space could be the same space again. And throughout the Old Testament, God promised that this, this space would happen, this world would happen, this kingdom would, would, would happen, and it would be a return to the original plan. It would be a return to Eden, where God provided everything that man needed and where they were in this perfect relationship, and God, this is the key, God and man were together. God's space and man's space was the same space, and he would be fully with us. And this place would be remarkable beauty, and it's not contaminated, it's not polluted by sin or pride or hate or any of the ugliness that we see in the world around us. And he promised all through the Old Testament that this was gonna happen. And to do that, he promised that he would send a Messiah, the chosen one, the one that God specifically had chosen to come and bring in his new kingdom. And that this Messiah would be a better Adam, right? A, a better man that, that could beat Satan and that could beat sin, and that could beat temptation, who would trust God's version of right and wrong, and what was righteous, and what was sinful. And then this new king would birth a whole new humanity, a whole new Adam, 
who trusted God's version of righteousness and evil instead of trying to make their own. And these people, this new race of people would be the citizens of the kingdom. And so for thousands of years, they waited for the Messiah to come and announce this coming of God's kingdom. And the Old Testament kind of ends with the problem, right? God's face and man's face are separated. And it ends with the promise that someday Messiah would come and bring our spaces together and reunite us with God. And then, yeah, Jesus comes on the scene. Uh, and if you remember the beginning of Jesus's ministry, he's baptized. And at the baptism, remember, God speaks down from heaven and basically says, he's the one, right? This is the Messiah that you've been, this is the one that's been chosen to announce my kingdom. He's the new Adam. And then Jesus goes into the wilderness to be tempted. Why? So that he could show, he could prove that he is the new Adam. He is the better man. He is the one that can stand up to sin and to temptation and to Satan. And then Jesus starts to work. Matthew 17, after the baptism, when God announces who he is, after the temptation, when he proves who he is, Matthew 4, 17 says, from then on, Jesus began to preach, and here's what he preached. Repent of your sins and turn to God, for the kingdom of heaven is near. And this thing of the kingdom of heaven is such a, it's, it's funny to me that as Jesus followers, we don't talk more about the kingdom of God because Jesus seemed like he was obsessed with it. He talked about it all the time. He was always trying to explain the kingdom of heaven to people. In fact, he described it to them with a whole bunch of stories and all these different ways. He's trying to help them understand what the kingdom of God is all about. In fact, this is just in Matthew. These are the little illustrations he gave. He said it was like the kingdom of God was like a man sowing seed in his field. He said it was like yeast. He said it was like a mustard seed. He said the kingdom is like a treasure hidden in a field. He said it's like a pearl. He said it's like a net let down to catch fish. He said it's like a king settling accounts. It's like a landowner hiring workers. It's like a king's wedding banquet. He said it's like 10 virgins waiting for a wedding. He said it's like a man who was rich and entrusted his servants with money. Each one of those things was a way that God would just, Jesus was just trying to get people to understand what the kingdom of God was all about. But as much as he talked about it and as good a job as he did explaining it, some stuff about the kingdom was just really hard to understand. And some stuff about the kingdom still is hard to understand, like when it's coming. Um, in Luke 17, 20, it says, one day the Pharisees asked Jesus, when will the kingdom of God come? And Jesus replied, the kingdom of God can't be detected by visible signs. You won't be able to say, here it is, or it's over there, for the kingdom of God is already among you. And one thing we're gonna see in this study is this weird, like, duality like a, like a dichotomy about the kingdom that it is here and it's coming. Like it's, it's already and it's not yet. Because in this passage, he says it's already here. But then in Matthew 6, he says when we pray, we should pray, Father, may your kingdom come. So is it here or is it coming? How, how can it be both? And so this is, this is like kind of a mystery. We're gonna come back to that. For now, Jesus has come to announce God's kingdom and that he's king of that kingdom. So today, we're gonna talk a little bit about citizenship. 
in that kingdom? Um, who's going to live there? And what are they going to be like? And I think a really important thing, to steal a modern term, what is the pathway to citizenship? Like, like, like how, how do we get in? And I think this is a really top priority for Jesus because one of the first things Jesus did is he started preaching the kingdom is he recruited some fishermen to be recruiters. Do you remember that story? Jesus went to the fishermen and he said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. What are we doing? We're gonna populate the kingdom. We need citizens. And Matthew 22, 4.22 says, a fisherman immediately left their nets and their boats and they followed Jesus to learn how to fish for people. And so now it's on. We're gonna, we're gonna start building up the citizenship and teaching people about the kingdom. So Matthew 4.23 says, Jesus traveled throughout the region of Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and announcing the good news about the kingdom. And he healed every kind of disease and illness. And news about him spread as far as Syria, and people soon began bringing to him all who were sick. And whatever their sickness or disease, if they were demon-possessed or epileptic or paralyzed, he healed them all. And large crowds followed him wherever he went. So this, these crowds of people were not only sick and crippled and paralyzed and diseased. Man, it was, it was rough to be sick in first century Rome. Right? If you couldn't work, you didn't eat. And that's just the way it was. There was no government programs. There was no Medicaid. There was no, you know, medical insurance or anything like that. If you were poor, you were just, like, kicked out. You were just rejected. You were just forgotten about. You just lived kind of on the outskirts of town. So Jesus looks at this crowd of broken down, exhausted, frustrated, poor, rejected people, and they're covered with pain and shame and bandages and tears, and they've got, I don't know, eye patches, and splints, and they're skinny, and they're hungry, and they're using those sticks for crutches, and, and, and he, he sees this crowd of sick, sad, broken down, poor, rejected people, and he starts teaching them the gospel, the good news of the kingdom of God. Here's what he says, it's Matthew 5, 3. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they'll be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they'll inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they'll be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they'll see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they'll be called children of God. Blessed are those that are persecuted for righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of of heaven. And so I want us to look at that passage and kind of just think about it a little bit. This is a list of attributes and blessings, right? So what are the attributes? He's, he's talking about people, there's a list, right? People that are poor in spirit, people that are mourning or sad, people that are meek or gentle or humble or lowly, people that hunger and thirst for righteousness, people that are merciful and pure in heart and peacemakers, people that are strong enough to endure persecution. persecution. And Jesus says, People with those attributes are blessed. So how are they blessed? And again, there's a list. He says they'll be comforted. They'll inherit the earth. That's where the kingdom is going to be. They'll be shown mercy. They'll see God. They'll be called children of God. And then he starts and he ends with the same blessing, with the same promise. These blessed people from the poor in spirit, in verse 3, to the ones that are strong enough to endure persecution, in verse 10, he says, theirs is the kingdom 
So do you, do you see what's happening here? These, these blessings, what he's describing is citizenship in God's kingdom. These, these blessed people are the people that will be in the kingdom. That there, they will be comforted and they will be shown mercy and they will see God and they will be called his children. These blessed people, theirs, is the kingdom of heaven. And what is really weird and revolutionary about Jesus compared to other religious leaders is he's not populating heaven with Pharisees. He's not populating heaven with religious people. He's not populating heaven with a specific family. Who, who are these? I mean, who are these blessed citizens of heaven? It's the people that he's talking to. It's, it's these broken people with their problems and their crutches and their shame and their pain, it, it, it's them. And can I tell you something really important? It's us. It's us. We're, we're the poor in spirit. We're, we're the sad. We're the meek. We're the broken and the humble. If we hunger and thirst for God's righteousness, we are the kingdom. So the sermon is kind of like a poem, right? It starts and it ends with the people that are citizens of heaven, and it says that they'll be comforted, they'll inherit the earth, they'll be shown mercy, they'll see God, they'll be called children of God. It says they will inherit the kingdom of heaven. And as I look at this little poem, I see a, a pattern kind of emerging from it, and there's kind of like a before and after deal happening here. So. The first couple of verses, verses three through five, the citizens are described in their current condition, right? They're poor in spirit, they're mourning, they're sad and meek and humble. It sounds like that broken audience that he's talking to, right? It sounds like us. And then later, in verses seven through 10, they're described as merciful and pure in heart and peacemakers. That sounds more like Jesus. And so, what, what changed? What, what, what's, What's the hinge, right? Because we were broken and rejected and sad and low, and then all of a sudden we're peacemakers and we're pure in spirit and we're all these things. We were like us, and now we're like Jesus. What's the, what's the hinge? It, it's this verse six. It's right in the middle. This is where it changes. It says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. So it seems like something happens to these future citizens of heaven, and it seems like it happens when they hunger and thirst for righteousness, and when they're filled, and they become more like Jesus. And I think that's it, man. That's the pathway to citizenship. The kingdom is a perfect place, and so it needs perfect citizens. It needs humans like Jesus, not humans like Adam. So what's the process to get there? What's the what's the how, how, do we, how do we qualify? What is the pathway to citizenship? Well, apparently it starts when we hunger and thirst for righteousness. It starts when we see the need for God's righteousness, to, to really see what is really good and really right and really true and see that my version of good and evil kind of doesn't matter, that my righteousness isn't making it. And so I need, I need to turn around. And the Bible calls that repentance. 
repentance. It's seeing that my righteousness and my version of good and evil is not working out for me. I hunger, I thirst, I want righteousness. This isn't happening, so I'm going to turn around. I'm going to repent. I'm going to turn away from my way. I'm going to turn away from my version of good and evil, and I'm going to trust his version of good and of evil. It's repentance. Um, Jesus said, repent and turn to God, because the kingdom of God is near. And in Acts 2, Peter said kind of the same thing. Remember the story in Acts 2 when the Holy Spirit came, everybody's speaking in different languages, their hair's on fire and all that, and everybody's saying, wow, what is happening, what is happening? Preach, Peter stands up, preaches this incredible message, and then the Bible says that their hearts were pierced by his message, and they said, okay, man, we're in. We're, yes, yes, what do we do? What, what do we do? And look what Peter says, Acts 2, 38. Peter replied, each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. So hungering and thirsting for righteousness starts with seeing my righteousness can't save me. That I'll never do enough good things to qualify for the kingdom. So now I'm gonna turn away, I'm gonna repent. I'm gonna turn away from my definition of righteousness, I'm gonna turn away from my way, and I'm gonna turn towards God's way and his definition of righteousness. I'm gonna really, I'm gonna really trust God. And this is a complete reversal of what Adam did, right? Remember, Adam chose his own version of good and evil because he didn't trust the goodness of God. And that's why people always say salvation is an act of trust. It's an act of faith. It's choosing, it's choosing to believe that God is good and that his version of righteousness is good. And look what Peter says in his little passage here. Acts 2.38, he says, each of you must repent of your sins, is the first step, right? And turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. Then, he says, you'll receive the Holy Spirit. Now, this is where it gets, like, kind of weird. Because now, in God's eyes, we've already, it is imputed righteousness, right? We've already accepted him. We've turned away from our way. We've accepted his way. We've been forgiven, and now he's imputed his righteousness to us. So now God looks at us and sees that we're righteous, and we are on the inside. And that's where God looks, so that's handy for us, right? Because that's where Christ is. Because now his spirit lives in us. Do you buy that? That the spirit of God lives in us. Yeah. Melissa does. <laughs> right? I mean, don't take my word for it. You shouldn't. I mean, let's see what the Bible says. Okay, let's see what the Bible says. Because that's a pretty bizarre concept, right? That the Spirit of God lives in me. That's, that's pretty weird. So let's see what it says. Romans 8 9 says, Remember that those who do not have the Spirit of Christ living in them do not belong to Him at all. So what that means is, if you do belong to Him, you do have the Spirit of Christ living in you. And this is why 1 Corinthians 6 19 says, Our body are a temple of the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? It means He lives in us, like we're His house. We're where he lives. In fact, the Holy Spirit in us is like our proof. Like, it's like our punched ticket. It's like, you know what it is? Old people are gonna have to help me out on this one. Do you remember we used to eat cereal? And they always had like an offer on there that you could get an amazing toy or something like that. But what did you have to do? You had to tear off the proof of purchase, right? You had to mail in three proofs of purchase or whatever, and you'd get this whatever toy. And that's really what the Spirit is. It's, it's our... It's our, the spirit living in us is our proof. It's our proof of purchase. It's our, it's our punch ticket. It shows 
that he's living inside of us and that, we, that we've accepted his salvation. 1 John 4.13 says, God has given us his spirit as proof that we live in him and he lives in us. So yeah, it's absolutely biblical that his spirit lives inside of us. You guys with me so far? Say yes. Yes, good. Okay, so here's something really interesting. Remember how the kingdom was kind of this weird dichotomy or mystery? It's because it's here and it's coming and it's already and it's not yet. That's the kingdom of God. That's also true of us. That's also true of our righteousness because we are righteous. We are holy and good and acceptable. We're new creations, the Bible says. We're like Jesus. So we are righteous and at the same time we're being made righteous. Isn't that weird? Isn't that like hard to like, so our righteousness is here and it's coming. It's already and it's not yet. Um, maybe help us see this. Let's just say you die today. <laughs> Let's go with a different thing. Let's say Jesus comes back today. Which do you want? I'll go either way. Death or Jesus coming back? You know, Jesus coming back, let's go with that. Okay, so Jesus comes back today, and so now the pearly gates, right? Now, we don't have time for all the funny jokes about St. Peter and all that. Okay, so now, it, what is it? It's judgment. It's judgment, right? And what is judgment? This is your citizenship hearing for the kingdom of God. And we know that God's kingdom is for the righteous, so a question is going to come up. And the question is, are you righteous? So let's take a poll. How many of you are righteous? Feels like a trick question, huh? How many of you are righteous? Okay, let me, let me help you. Have you repented of your sin? Have you turned to God? Have you put your faith in Christ? Do you, the Bible says he is our righteousness. Um, his spirit in you is proof of purchase. So are you righteous? Yes, Jesus, Jesus is your righteousness. But now, if you raised your hand, let me ask you this. Is there still unrighteousness in you? How's that work? Right, like, well, is that, let me ask you this. How many of you would say that at least maybe once you've sinned since you were saved? Oh, a couple, that's good. Uh, how many of you would say that you've sinned even in the last year? Oof. I start over. That's just, uh, <laughs> how many of you would say you've sinned in the last seven days? How many of you have sinned since this sermon started? <laughs> Only the honest people. Uh, so, like, that's it, right? It's, it's a hard thing to understand. Our, our righteousness, our holiness, our godliness, our acceptableness in the kingdom, our citizenship is kind of like the kingdom itself, right? It's here and it's coming. It's already and not yet. And it's all by the power of Jesus. It's his model, it's his teaching, it's his sacrifice, it's his spirit in us. And as his spirit is in us, it has a function. The Holy Spirit, he's not just sitting there inside of us. He has a, he's got a job and part of his job is what we call sanctification, and that is the act of him making our thoughts and our words and our actions kind of line up with the righteousness of Christ in us. And he does it by conviction, not condemnation, not condemnation, conviction, by, by pointing out changes, 
that need to be made in us. And by leading us down right paths and leading us away from wrong paths and by empowering us to change and follow Jesus. And this is a really important thing, this act of sanctification, this act of changing us, the way that we talk, the way that we live, the way that we, we, we think and the things that we do, that, that act of changing us is the work of God. It's the work of the Holy Spirit in you. It's not your work. It's his work. Look at Philippians 1.6. This is Paul. He's writing to a church. He's writing to Christian people. And he says, I'm certain that God, who began the work within you, so who began the work? God. God will continue his work. Whose work is it? It's God's work. Until it's finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. So the sanctification process is God's work, and it's not ours. But listen, just like in the garden, when he was creating all this beauty and everything, we still have free will. Right? We, can, we, we can still reject his changes. We can reject his leading. And, but listen, if we really hunger and thirst for righteousness if we really wanna be what he wants us to be, if he really wanna become what he's calling us to become, obviously we will listen and we'll let him change us. And this is a cool thing that happens is that the day that, it, when, when does it happen that we get fully like Jesus? Yeah, the day that Jesus returns. So when Jesus comes back to finally fully establish his kingdom here, that same day, we will be finally fully righteous and ready for his kingdom. What a, Interesting coincidence, right? It's, it's a process, and as, as, as he's bringing his kingdom, he's bringing it in us as well. And I, if I could just say this, this is why Christians are so disappointing, right? Because they have the imputed righteousness of Christ in them, and the Holy Spirit is inside of them, and he's changing them from the inside out, but it's a process, and it won't be finished. We won't actually fully be like Jesus until the day when Christ Jesus returns. So I think this is cool. Our citizenship, our righteousness, really is like the mystery of the kingdom. It's here and it's coming. It's already and it's not yet. So God looks at us, he sees Christ in us, and he says we are righteous. But at the same time, his Holy Spirit is making us righteous. You guys with me so far? Yeah. You having fun today? Yeah. Okay, so important question. How do we get the process started, right? If we want to get on the path to citizenship, how do we get him to forgive us? How do we get him to impute his righteousness to us? How do we get him to send the Holy Spirit to live in us and live through us and lead us and convict us and empower us so that we can be citizens of heaven? Because listen, this is a powerful, amazing opportunity that we have to be changed from the inside out, to become like Jesus, to become part of the new Adam, right? To be to be righteous and holy and good and have a place as citizens in the kingdom of heaven. This is an amazing thing that we're asking to happen. How do we get it to happen? How do we get it to happen? This is, are you ready? Are you ready? This is important. Ask and he will. Ask and he will. If you want, if you really are hungry for righteousness, if you really want to be what God says you should be, if you really want to do it his way instead of your way, if you really want to be made righteous, if you want his righteousness imputed into you and his spirit to live in you and begin to change you from the inside out, if that's what you want, ask, and he will. It's a promise. Look at Luke 11. Verse 11 says, you fathers, if your children ask for a fish, do you give them a snake? If they ask for an egg, do you give them a scorpion? Of course not. So if you sinful people know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more 
will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? We just ask. And he will. Impute his righteousness to us and fill us with his spirit and finish the work of making us like Jesus and get us ready to be citizens in the kingdom of heaven. The whole thing starts, the whole path to citizenship starts with us asking for something we can't live without. Something that only he can fill us with. His righteousness. And his spirit. And it's free. Does that make sense? You get it? You get it? Can I tell you a question that scares me? Can I? Okay. This asking comes from people that are hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And what do you think those words were chosen? What does that mean? I think I, food and water, it's, I need it. Right? I need it to live. I can't live without it. I'm desperate to have food and to have water. And so this asking for his righteousness comes from people that are hungering for his righteousness. So this is people that so desperately want to be like Jesus, that so desperately want to live in his kingdom that it, it's literally life or death for them. Can you see why? I mean, it, it qualifies us to be with him forever. It qualifies for us to be in this perfect place where there is no hate and there is no envy and there is no jealousy and there is no death and there is no illness and there is no betrayal. Can you see why that's such an amazing thing and why people would hunger for that? But the question that scares me is not, will God fill us? The question that scares me is, are we hungry? Are we hungry? Have you guys enjoyed the message so far? It's over now. Okay, the, the fun part's over now. Um, are we hungry? I mean, do we need it? Do we need it like food? Do we need it like, like water? Are we really hungry for his righteousness? Or are we already full? Because I think one of the great schemes of our enemy is filling us up. And I think a lot of us are already pretty full. You know, we're full of the busyness of life. Um, we're filled with work. We're filled with social media. We're filled with politics. We're filled with binge-watching 22 consecutive episodes of a show that we've already seen three times. We're filled with video games. We're filled with acquiring stuff. We're filled with climbing the social ladder. We're filled with climbing the corporate ladder. We're filled with kids' sports, golf, hobbies, religion. And it's not so much that those things are bad. Those things aren't inherently bad unless we allow ourselves to fill up on them. So when I was growing up in Albuquerque, um, I'm a pretty big guy. My dad was a big guy. My brother's a big guy. And one of our favorite restaurants to eat in Albuquerque is a place called Bella Vista. And it's up in the mountains. And it's a really pretty scene and all that stuff. And my dad would always take us up to Bella Vista. And the reason we liked going there was because it was all you can eat. All the fried fish and all the fried chicken you can eat. And so when we went up there, we went with purpose. You know what I'm saying? We wanted to put them out of business, right? We were going to, to we were going, it's, somebody's going to win and somebody's going to lose, you know? We're going to win. 
And that's what we were going to do. And so we would be driving up there, and my dad would, like, begin to talk strategy of how we're going to do this thing. Because they knew what they were doing. Right? They, would bring, they would bring these platters of, like, these biscuits, right? French fries, coleslaw, right? They'd bring you all that stuff first. And so as we were driving up there, my dad would say, okay, let's get our deal straight. Here's what we're going to do. Listen, rule number one, don't fill up on roughage. That's the exact words. Don't fill up on roughage because that's what they want you to do. They'd love you to go in there and fill up on coleslaw, right? They'd love you to go in there and fill up on those stupid biscuits. They would love you to go in there and fill up on french fries, and then you won't eat any chicken or fish, but we're not going to do that, right? We are not going to fill up on roughage because then we won't be hungry for the good stuff, and we're going with a purpose, right? It's us against them. That's, that's what we're doing. They're, they want you to fill up on that stuff, and I think if we allow ourselves to get too caught up in our pursuits of whatever, money or houses or clothes or cars or our jobs or our stuff or our followers on social or kids' sports or golf or politics or TV, I think that's what Satan wants us to do. He, it's like this is his plan. I mean, he knows you already have the righteousness of Jesus, right? So he's probably not going to waste his time trying to tempt you to rob a bank or to murder somebody or something like that. There's an old expression, if Satan can't make you bad, he'll make you busy, right? He'll fill you up on roughage. If we fill up too much on the things of this world, we're just not going to be hungry for the kingdom. If we try to achieve, if we try to earn, if we try to attain real peace, real purpose, real joy with that stuff, we, we won't have any hunger left for the changes that the Holy Spirit wants to make in us to make us righteous and to give us his kingdom. And that's why Jesus said, these are the things that the people of this world worry about. But if you seek first his kingdom, his righteousness, then all these things will be added, the, the joy and fulfillment and peace and contentment and purpose that we try so hard to find. We'll never get them through work, our money, our popularity, our fame, our stuff. But if we seek first his kingdom, if we seek first his righteousness, the promise is if we ask, he will. He will, he will fill us with his spirit and his righteousness and his perfect contentment and peace and joy and, and purpose and his kingdom. God is, God is looking to, to, to populate his kingdom with people that are really hungry for him, that are really hungry for righteousness, that are really hungry for his kingdom. And here's the place where it's like, okay, the sermon stopped and now you're butting into my life too much, so just bear with me. There's a recurring image in the Old Testament of an altar. You know the altar? This is a place where people would go and they would take something valuable and they would lay it down before God and they would say, this is a good thing, but I see that you're better. I see that you're better. And I think the New Testament application of that, the thing that maybe some of us might want to say is, here's this thing that I've been filling up on, right? And maybe it's sin. Maybe it's something bad, and you just need to repent of it. You need to turn away from it. We need to burn it up, right? Maybe it's something sinful, or maybe it's not even bad. Maybe, maybe I don't have to totally turn from it, but I will not fill up on this roughage because 
I want to be filled with your righteousness. I want to be filled with your spirit. I want to be filled with your kingdom. So today, I hope that you will come with me to the altar. And I'm going to pray for his kingdom to come and for his will to be done in the world and in me. And I'm going to pray that he will change the world, starting with me. And I'm going to pray that he will show me any roughage that I'm filling up on, anything sinful or not, that is taking away my hunger for him. And I'm going to pray for God to give me a hunger. Listen, a Christ-like obsession for his righteousness and for his kingdom. And I'm going to stand on his promise that if we ask, he will. He will fill us with his righteousness and he will fill us with his spirit. He will fill us with him so that our space and his space is the same space. Let's pray. Father, Jesus told us to pray, your kingdom come and your will be done. And that's our prayer today, Lord. Will you bring your kingdom here? We're ready for it to be fully here. And will you, will, you, will you make changes that need to be changed in this world and also in us? God, will you show us whatever our roughage is, right? Whatever the thing is that we're filling up on. Maybe it's sin and we need to completely abstain, completely run away, completely turn away from it. Or maybe it's just something that's good in our life, but it's taking away our hunger for you. God, will you show us that thing? Will you help us to lay it down on the altar? Will you help us to see this thing is good, but your righteousness is better? Will you help us to see that you want to provide the peace and purpose and comfort and joy that we're looking for through your righteousness and through your spirit in us and through your kingdom? God, will you give us a hunger Will you give us a Christ-like obsession for your righteousness, for your kingdom? And God, we're standing on your promise. You said, if we ask, you will. Fill us with your righteousness, fill us with your spirit, and fill us up with you. Fill us up with you so that your space and our space can be the same space. In Jesus' name.